Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shalom, this is Rabbi Joshua Heller, and welcome to Daily Daf Differently. Today we're studying Tractate Yevamot, Daf Kuf Yud Tet, 119, as we begin the final chapter of Masachet Yevamot. We're still looking at questions of what assumptions you can make about someone's personal status based on the information that you might have. Now doctors like to say, if you hear hoof prints, think horses, not zebras. Now, if you don't know what's happening, then you assume the most likely scenario rather than worrying about the more unlikely. There was a logician, logician named Thomas Bayes and a school of statisticians that followed him that proposed some other ways of thinking about numbers. That sometimes, even if you only have a little bit of information, that lets you show that a possibility that would ordinarily be very unlikely might actually be more likely than you might think. So today's DAF asks those very questions, how much we are concerned about somewhat or relatively unlikely events. So for example, if a woman's husband goes overseas with his other wife, and she receives word that that husband has died, she can neither remarry a stranger, nor undergo leveret marriage to the husband's brother. Because we don't know if the other wife may have become pregnant and have a child, thus eliminating the possibility of leveret marriage. But of course, if she doesn't, then leveret marriage is required. So we have to wait and see what happened. Alternatively, there could be a scenario where it is not her partner wife, but her mother-in-law who goes overseas. In that case, the situation is flipped. We are not concerned that there might be a stepchild that was born, which would thus eliminate the need for Yivam, but rather we are concerned that this woman has had a brother-in-law born, and then she would have to wait until this child is old enough for Yivam or Chalitza to take place. And in that case, we conclude that she need not be concerned that perhaps a brother-in-law was born, unless her mother-in-law departed already pregnant. Now, in that case, Rabbi Joshua says that even then, she need not be concerned about the birth of a possible brother-in-law that would require Yivam. So, just to be clear, in one case, we are worried that the co-wife has had a child, which would make Yivam impossible. In the second case, we are concerned that the mother-in-law might have had a child, which would make Yivam necessary, but we end up not worrying about that possibility. So, how do we understand the difference between these two cases? Well, the Gemara explains, we apply a combination of logic and probabilistic reasoning to decide which unlikely possibilities are most likely to concern us. According to biblical law, there's a sort of majority rules. If the chances are even slightly more than 50%, we assume yes. And if they are even slightly less, then we don't. Rabbi Meir, on the other hand, rules that we must always be concerned even about a situation that applies only in a minority of cases. Now, we already saw on Daf Kufhe, page 105, that Rabbi Meir was concerned for a minor possibility. 
specifically the possibility that a minor boy or girl would grow up but never mature sexually and go through puberty and therefore retroactively not have been able to perform the rituals of Yivam or Chalitza and break the bond between widow and brother-in-law. Now, this is a very unusual scenario because most of the time, children do turn into teenagers and mature in that way. So we see Rabbi Meir is concerned about a fairly unlikely possibility. Now, since the first part of our Mishnah worries about a not very likely possibility, we conclude that it seems to be following Rabbi Meir's approach. But then, the second part of the Mishnah seems to be willing to ignore the possibility that the mother-in-law has given birth to a brother for the deceased husband. Why do we worry that the co-wife will have a baby while we don't have the same concern about the mother-in-law? Are the chances of one any more or less likely than the chances of the other getting pregnant? The answer, after a great deal of back and forth, is that we actually have to look at two different factors. One is chazaka, the state we're already in, where we've started off, and then ruba, the majority. In part one, the chazaka, the last known situation, is that the woman would need yivum. And so even though we feel that the chances that the co-wife did not have a child are less than 50%, the chazaka and the miuta, the unlikely case, come together to create a ruba, an assumption that uh, together is a majority of the possibilities. In contrast, in part two of the Mishnah, the chazaka, our starting assumption, was that she wouldn't need Yivam, because there's no brother-in-law yet, and the minority possibility, the miuta, does move you in the opposite direction, but since you don't start with a strong assumption, it doesn't get you far enough that you need to worry about it. Since the chazaka, the established situation, and the miuta, the unlikely case, take you in opposite directions, they don't add up to something we worry about. Now, there is a related, though not identical, form of analysis in modern statistics, as I mentioned, called Bayesian reasoning, where you take your prior probability and multiply it against whatever probabilities you have now come up with, partial information, to come up with what seems like the most likely outcome, given the imperfect information that you have. Now, not all logistics and statisticians like this form of reasoning, but some love it when you have to figure out the odds and you only have imperfect information. So you normally wouldn't worry about an infrequent event, a miyuta. But if you have prior information, a chazaka, that might make you think that that infrequent event might be a little more common in this case, then the odds change, and maybe you consider Aruba a more likely situation after all. One final head-scratcher on this stuff. Take two women married to two brothers. Both go overseas and report upon their return that their husbands have died. Oddly enough, they may not remarry. Why? We know from the rest of our tractate that they are each believed to say that their own husband has died. The problem is that is not sufficient to prevent the yivum obligation kicking in. And so therefore, while each woman's testimony is enough to allow herself to remarry, she is still obligated to yivum with her former brother-in-law. And last off, we specifically said that a woman could not testify about her sister-in-law's husband because we assume that sister-in-laws don't like each other. So, this is how it gets even weirder. If the two of them go overseas, one of them has witnesses to her husband's death, and one of them does not have witnesses, the one who doesn't have witnesses gets to remarry, and the one who does, doesn't. Take that, Bayes, 
And that's the end of Kuf Yud Tet, Amud Base. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.